welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Paul Sheasley to the show. Paul is a psychotherapist with almost 20 years of experience in the field of clinical psychology. As one of DC's most notable transformational psychotherapists, he empowers politicians, C-level executives, and other prominent people and couples to achieve balance in both their personal and professional lives. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey and discuss challenges working with these types of clients and the therapy approaches he uses to help these clients. Paul, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to today's recording. Well, I know you're a busy man and you've uh, got a lot of experience and certifications, but before we get started, do you remember when you first became interested in counseling and psychology? Actually, I do. Um, it, it goes <laughs> far back, actually, so somewhere around the age of 14. Um, I remember my parents had um, gotten me a, a book on psychology for my birthday. And I actually still have the book. It says, Happy Birthday, Paul, 14. Um, and it was, a, I can't remember her name. is Dr. Um, Dorothy Oatnow, and she's a, a actually forensic psychiatrist. Um, and interesting, now I do remember the book. It was um, Guilty by Reason of Insanity. And I guess my parents thought, or my mother thought that was an interesting <laughs> book for me to read because um, I was also taking a psychology course in high school. I thought this was really neat. And I guess they thought, well, we'll, we'll get them a, a, a small gift, a book. I'm like, yeah, a book. And uh, I remember reading it and just becoming fascinated with the field and, and the, the um, case examples and studies that she had done with her population. And so that, that, I think that is where it kicked off. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that book because it was focused on forensic and you actually received your Master of Arts uh, in Forensic Psychology at the school at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And if you've seen any of our podcasts, what we normally do is kind of go through your academic and professional journey. And I'll go back to your Bachelor of Arts. You attended McDaniel, or is it Daniel? McDaniel? Yep, McDaniel, yes. McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland for your BA in Psychology and Neuroscience. At what point did you know you wanted to get your psychology degree? Was it after reading that book or was it later on? Tell us a little bit more about that. So I, from there, again, I had finished the psychology course in high school. And um, at the time, this was a, I was in the era where folks began to start taking college classes while in high school. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking to the local community college and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to take another one uh, and I'll, I'll get to leave high school early, which was great. Um, and so I started taking college courses. Um, some of the basic courses that, that uh, most will start out with is your psychology 101 and the human development like 102 and um, you know technical writing and all that fun stuff. And so I started taking those courses and became even more intrigued, uh, especially through the developmental piece, just understanding human development from you know, infancy on, uh, which was which was another avenue of of, of uh, becoming more aware of people, and um, and then in there there was this opportunity because as a high schooler, it's like we 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 typically do um, like volunteer work at some point, and I thought, well, I where are these folks? <laughs> it's like where the folks, right? The the folks that I've read about, you know, were mental health, right? I know where we go for uh, physical, right? We go to the doctor, we go to the hospital. And so I went to the hospital and thinking, okay, well, um, I think there is a mental health ward or sect, a part of the hospital. And I went and I spoke to the director and I remember them saying, well, we do have one. Um, it's a psychiatric unit, but we don't have volunteers there. So I said, oh, well, I'm going to be the first. So I, I went and I reached out to the director of the psychiatric unit. And I said, I'm really interested. You know, I'm so, you know, I'm fascinated by the field. I'd like to be involved. 
and she spoke to the director of the hospital or the volunteer the volunteer service and i was their first volunteer um, on the emergency psychiatric ward um, and so then that's where it really picked up uh, my interest so i remember doing that quite a bit um, and Interestingly, the experience was almost play it by ear because it's like, well, what do you? What was my role? And I kind of invented my role, and <laughs> a lot of the times it was stay behind the counter, right. <laughs> just kind of observe, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So that that was a really cool experience. Well, you mentioned one of your experiences, and you have uh, many others, as I mentioned. Uh, the next school that you attended after your BA, as I mentioned in the intro. Uh, is the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, and you received your uh, Master of Arts in Forensic Psychology. So I was curious, you went from psychology and neuropsychology, and then you went to forensic. So I have a couple questions regarding that. So what made you kind of in, more interested in exploring that field or that section of psychology versus staying within clinical psychology? So I never quite diverted from clinical psychology. I, always, I tell folks that I, I tailored my education and experiences. And so when I was at the McDaniel College, um, you know, it was primarily focused on psychology and then the neuroscience piece kicked in. Um, I remember Dr. Stephen Grant, um, and wonderful man, very intelligent, worked at NIDA. Um, and NIH, and he taught a lot of cognitive neuroscience classes. I took neurobiology courses, and I felt at that time, I, I really wanted to link, you know, the biology to mental health. And that, and I always, I still am, um, you know, a nerd for science and biology. And so the brain fascinates me, especially you know, even when I do work with obsessive compulsive disorder and understanding brain hemispheres, et cetera. Uh, you know, a good therapist is a, an amygdala whisperer. And so that's like really, sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> so we had to do interns and practicums uh, as part of our, our senior year. And I did a practicum at Spring Grove in Maryland. And so uh, for those who don't know who, who, what that is, it's a mental health facility. It's the third oldest in the nation. Uh, and and on, in that facility, that uh, inpatient, but they also have an outpatient. And I'm sure many other programs there, because it's been quite some time since I've been there. Um, they had a, a lockdown unit. And so I remember they quite caught it a forensic unit, but it was locked down for a reason. And there were... Uh, uh, many patients there that had been held or had been there like post some sort of event in their life, not only mental health, but something else that may have caused them to say, hey, you know what, I think we need to keep, keep you from the community. I remember working there and working with a few individuals and I thought, man, this was really neat. I like, I, I, I'm very curious about human behavior and not only human behavior, but what is it that what influences human behavior to be to commit crimes right to um you know act out against others in a way that violates one's rights right and so uh, i was very curious about that and you know these terms as i was developing my psychological uh, mindset is like antisocial personalities and sociopathy and um, you know, and, I, and even growing up, right, we watch these movies and they talk about, but they illustrate and they inflate these types of terms and what these people look like. And I'm like, wow, these, it looks very different than what, what I'm watching in the entertainment world. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to understand the biology, the psychology and the behavior of these, of these individuals. And I just thought that was so uh, fascinating. And, and obviously with the um, influence of other like professors and, and professionals, um, just exploring their background and being influenced by them, I then decided, you know, I, I wanna check out this program. So the Chicago School of Professional Psychology offered a forensic uh, master's degree. Um, another segue into that, I was also working with the juvenile justice system and working with adolescent offenders. And so um, that was another avenue of understanding even from an earlier stage of life, human behavior from, from a developmental standpoint. 
Um, and so I was interested in doing forensics and I wanted to do a forensic valuations. I wanted to do court testimony. I wanted to do assessments. Um, you know, I wanted to be at that time, someone that would be able to, um, initiate with these individuals and be able to give a psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that felt rewarding. And I know not, not many of us at that time, I would consider wanted to do that type of stuff. You know, uh, you know, they read about these folks in the news and they go, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, it's interesting that you brought up a couple of things. Number one is the, uh, forensic and, and almost tailoring your education. And you took control by saying, hey, I want to explore this. I want to look a little bit more at the forensic and the uh, amygdala, as you said, and, and, and look at how the brain works. I'm sharing the screen. And, and this is the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And as you mentioned, um, when you click on psychology here, you have all these different areas that you could go into. And it's just by chance, if you saw my recent guest, she actually teaches at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Dr. Rhonda Goldman. I don't know if that rings a bell to you, if, if she was there when you were there or not, but she's in the clinical psychology department. But as you said, you, you focused more on the forensic, but it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because as you know, there's so many different types of psychologists out there that, uh, you know, and types of therapists and counselors, more and more people are bringing in the neuropsychology or the neuroscience into their field as well. Um, and, you know, especially in forensic and, and that sort of uh, field as well. So tell me a little bit more about kind of any suggestions that you might have for our audience members when selecting a graduate psychology program. I know that you already mentioned, I wanted to tailor it and I wanted to get a, a vast experience. Any other bits of advice or suggestions of, for people wanting to continue their undergraduate in psychology into the graduate realm? I would say uh, to be open-minded to different populations and therapeutic approaches. And I think the graduate uh, professors do an excellent job of expanding those horizons for students in terms of, um, you know, different types of theories that they could uh, elaborate on, but also the populations that they can experience working with through like their practicum and internship. And so... I think that's super important in terms of just identifying, a, you know, one, the degree of comfort in working with folks, you know, well, I mean, I've talked to other professionals and, and when I was doing more forensics, people would go, uh-uh, I don't even, I don't even want your patients in my building. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so that was, that was, you know, that is a niche and, and that was very, uh, again, selected and as you'll come to find out, I've worked with many different populations and that's just one because I'm a psychology nerd and I love working with people, um, but trying on different hats, different locations, different styles, different. Um, and when I say locations, like if you're going to do substance use, you know, you're working in a, in a methadone clinic or an outpatient clinic or forensics in a, in a jail system or outpatient system. And so you have different environments and different people and, doing your research and talking to other professionals or listening to podcasts like this, which they did not have uh, when I was uh, in my career uh, decision-making. So that's the, that's some of the advice. Well, great advice. I know that uh, I, I found your CV, uh, your Vita, and I kind of see chronologically what you did, but I'm going to open it up to you. When you immediately you know, received your, your master's degree. What did you do right after that? I know that you were working on things while you were yeah. going through your master's, but do you remember, Hey, I went through graduation. <laughs> I have my master's degree. What yeah. was the next thing that you did? Yeah. And it, there's a lot of parallels here too, in terms of, um, how one thing influences while working on another to the next decision. So even just before my master's, I had been doing in-home family therapy. Um, And so working with the Department of Juvenile Service, social services. So I was very much in the community field, working with adolescents and families. And, you know, as an adult, and I tell folks all this all the time is that uh, some of the challenges we have, we weren't born yesterday, right? It's, some of our challenges have come from a once upon a time and it's, and it's often from childhood and adolescence. And so being able to have that unique perspective and working with families and adolescents 
at that time while completing my master's, you know, did give rise to a lot of appreciation for the adult challenges. Mm-hmm. And I had ended up um, working with more severe population of adolescents uh, when I uh, worked at a level five um, inpatient educational program for uh, severe emotionally disturbed adolescent females. Um, and so I did that for some time while completing my master's degree. And so that, again, there was some forensics piece there. There was a lot of trauma. This is where my trauma experience starts to come into play. Uh, this is where neural psychology comes into play and development. And then uh, I think trekking through my master's and completing that, it's what do I do next, right? Because I have this master's degree, but I, there's, a, there's a pathway. It's um, if I'm going to continue to practice uh, in a capacity where I'm more independent, then I need to become licensed. And so, um, you know, that journey took off and, and I needed to find a, a home, if you will, to sharpen my clinical skills, but also to complete the re- recommended protocol for getting licensed, right? Which mm-hmm. is your hours and uh, supervision and, you know, how many specific group hours and individual hours and, and so on. And I thought, well, I also am interested in substance use. <laughs> and why? It's because it shows up everywhere. And it did. It showed up in, 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 even in the, um, the forensic world. It showed up in the juvenile world. It showed up in the family world. And so I was very curious about substance use and um, its behaviors of. And so I um, pursued a... Um, career then in uh, with the local health department and so outpatient community service um, and it was is the, the the old word for it was uh, department of addictions well they've long <laughs> changed that um, with you know the climate of, of substance use and so that too was an interesting time in life because the substance use and its focus had taken a turn um, and that it became more emphasized, more, um, you know, the public awareness grew. And so as it grew, I grew and it ballooned with me in it. Um, and so I became in my county and part of Maryland, a face for that department and, and the community and working with the, with the court systems, um, you know, addict, like addictions court and, um, I ran and developed an intensive outpatient program for for the county, which um, I remember going to the psychiatrist who had trained me. I was was trained there by a clinical psychiatrist and um, for a portion of my hours. And I said, you know, I I think I want to run an IOP. Did you guys have one before? And they go, yeah, but it didn't work. I said, well, I'm going to make this one work. And it did. And still still ongoing today. And so... um, you know, that was a lot of great experience and doing my internship at a methadone clinic. You know, I used to wake up and be there by 4.45, 5 a.m. I'd work there. I'd go back to my office working with other patients. And then from there, I would go to maybe even drive to school, come back and work an extended day to the late evening because I had to fit it all in there. <laughs> so it sounds, yeah, it sounds like, uh, I mean, I, I'll share my screen again. And and for those of you who want to find out a little bit more about Paul and his experiences and licenses and uh, nice employment history here, I went through everything. I'm not going to highlight uh, any single one here, but it's nice to see, you know, you not only provided the experience and and kind of the dateline to kind of put us in the, in the chronological order there, but you've described a lot of people wouldn't know what, uh, you know, some of your roles were. So you gave a good description. So I, I, I applaud you for doing that. But let me try to attempt to summarize a little bit of some of your uh, experiences after your master's. And uh, yeah. number one is you, you kept uh, involved in many different areas. You kept mm-hmm. working, you kept expanding, you kept uh, accruing those hours. But not only that, but in different areas uh, of psychology as well. You also attended uh, Tosin University to receive a certificate of advanced study in counseling and clinical psychology in 2013. Also during this time, you, as you mentioned, you did an internship uh, as a psychotherapist, group therapist at Methadone Clinic, 
Uh, you were also an FFT or a functional family therapist at Morningstar Youth Academy. Uh, and then eventually you went into, and I found this one very interesting. You worked at the Cecil County Correctional Facility uh, at Hartford, or not Hartford, it's Harford County uh, Health Department. And that was that division of addiction services uh, that they probably rebranded as well. And you, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned this one because you mentioned a lot of them. Baltimore Crisis Response as Director of the Crisis Residential Services. And the final one I wanted to mention was the Chesapeake Healthcare Solutions. And so advice on how you kept finding these opportunities to expand your experience, knowledge. And then as you said, you were, the timing was right. It started to balloon and you were there and you were almost the face for your community there. So tell us kind of overall suggestions on how our audience could help find some of these. And back then it was probably a little different than now. Uh, and I don't want to answer for you, but I think word of mouth, knowing people, and then reaching out and don't be afraid to reach out. But now you could do a lot of things online, but I don't want to uh, de-emphasize the importance of making those connections, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Um, there was a lot of, you know, having conversations with folks in the field that, that you know, I had gravitated to, towards. Um, you know, I ended up getting a double licensure. So at that time, I think there was only 900 of us in the state of Maryland that were duly licensed as an addiction specialist as well as mental health. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I still had this forensic piece that was happening. And so uh, the Cecil County Correctional Facility was the, the location you had referred. And so I was there uh, in conjunction with a psychiatrist, pretty much the only team that pretty much ran the mental health portion of that facility um, in that correctional facility. And um, the methadone clinic piece was a part of the practicum that was the requirement for uh, my, for the licensure as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then Towson University uh, was the location where I did receive extra credit. And interestingly there, again, coming back to being tailored was that a lot of the classes were not clinical. So I had to go to the director and I said, I want clinical classes. And she said, well, you're not a part of the clinical program. I said, I know, <laughs> I'm, I want to take clinical classes. And she said, well, I'll give you a shot. So she let <laughs> me take a, a clinical course. And from there, I took uh, my, clinic, my clinical classes with clinical psych students, uh, both PhD track and practitioner track um, to access all, most of my clinical experiences or course load there. Um, and so it, it, it's, there's a lot of self-driven, I'm a very ambitious person as it, maybe you could tell. And so, um, you know, and I'm, I'm persistent. And so, you know, seeking out these opportunities, they fell in line with, with what I felt would ground me out in my understanding of, of, of people. And, which then led to my, me wanting to go, you know what, I think I'm going to venture into private practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I have enough clinical acumen and uh, interaction and human behavior to understand the complexities of folks because every one of those areas ident identified are quite complex. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it did, it helped me considerably in terms of working with folks of all walks of life. Very good transition. You helped me out on my next uh, follow-up question. Now you have a private practice in both Bel Air, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. I'll share your website. Wonderful looking website. And when you scroll down, uh, good introduction. And then uh, the types of therapy and how you focus on the <coughs> different therapy. One thing that point that uh, uh, kind of stood out to me was the schema therapy. So for our audience, kind of give us a high-level summary of what schema therapy is. Sure. So schema therapy, um, I remember several years ago, I was looking to sharpen my clinical skills again. And I thought, well, you know, I've got the gold standard of cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy and rational emotive behavioral therapy. And I've got all these great cognitive tools, right? Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I, I want to what about personality disorders? And what about folks that, you know, I find to be, have difficult responding to traditional cognitive methods? Because I was actually start, starting to become quite interested in working with borderline personality disorder and narcissistic 
personalities. And um, I was reading about schema therapy and I thought, well, this is really cool. And not only that, but Wendy Beharry and, and Dr. Jeffrey Young, um, you know, the, the you know, president, director and founder were, were, um, were behind this model. And so I'm, in Washington, DC, they held a two day training and Wendy Beharry was running it with my friend and colleague, Paul Del Grosso. And I was like, wow, this is just some great stuff. And so or schema therapy um, is, is, it's integrative. It has cognitive components, but also emotional gestalt, gestalt um, you know, chair work. And it has a big emphasis on looking at childhood origin and trauma or neglect or unmet need that then references what's called schema or life traps, as I like to call them, in which, um, you know, from a developmental environmental standpoint, these life traps such as defectiveness, failure, unrelenting standards, emotional deprivation become um, a cognitive, emotional, physiological, and behavioral response to the environment. And so because our brains, right, our memories cannot tell time, it looks to the environment and goes, uh oh, I've been there before, uh, even if it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes folks can have a, a unhealthy response or a coping mode. And so these modes create a lot of disturbances in one's life and, um, and, and in relationships for oneself, uh, behaviorally, cognitively. And so um, schema therapy works with the individual on an emotional level to understand these life traps, you know, whether it is defectiveness or failure or internal critic modes or punitiveness. And so and there's 18, by the way, and I won't <laughs> write them all off. Of them. Um, and to help them, I say, wow, you know, you, you know, there's this uh, experience in your life that has then been interpreted throughout the rest of your life and it keeps resonating. And so your expectations of relationships and the relationship you have with yourself seems to be repeated and familiar from these earlier experiences. And oh, look at that. And now you're coping with it, but you're doing it in a way that's unhealthy and creating suffering. And um, and as may, many of the listeners, and if you don't, you know, borderline personality, individuals you know they tend to have a complex trauma background and so a lot of these core needs uh have been unmet and so they're constantly surviving and striving to meet these needs in in their later lives and so working through this model i thought wow this is working for my clients and not just that but i've been able to even um take pieces of it and apply it to other folks and other individuals in life just to help them understand their scripts. And so I trained with Wendy Beharry and, uh, and Dr. Jeffrey Young and Paul Del Grosso, and it's, it takes years to become proficient. Um, and so I've trained with like Travis Atkinson and working with schema therapy and couples, uh, Ida Shaw, for example, and um, you know, working with group schema therapy. And so I am a schema therapist. I'm a part of the International Society for Schema Therapy, the Washington DC Schema Therapy, New Jersey Schema Therapy Institute. And so very much involved um, and a participant um, and advocate for this, this model and the community. Well, thank you for that summary. I know that uh, through my discussions outside of and, and during uh, the podcast, I learn all about these different therapies and our website highlights those as well. And EFT comes to mind when you mm-hmm. were describing schema therapy as well, emotion focused therapy. One thing that I wanted to highlight for everybody is, you know, everybody knows that it's stressful going through COVID, but here's kind of an interesting uh, update from all of 2021. And and if you can see my screen, it's basically uh, breaks down the adults reporting symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder or both by state. And I know that you're in Maryland and then Washington, D.C. And and the average for the United States, you can see up here on, on top. And I noticed that Maryland was slightly below this, but Washington, D.C. was actually above this. And so just going across the border there, 
all of a sudden you have all this stress. And the reason that I'm kind of bringing this up now is, you know, you're, you're kind of the psychotherapist in DC that, that people go to. So you have these politicians, these CEOs, these other influential, powerful people that come to you. And we have to remind ourselves that they're human too. And they're going to go through some challenges um, through these times as well. And so in some ways, it's almost more essential to deal with those people because they're under more stress uh, or maybe under more stress. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, how you found yourself in that role and how you've become one of the prominent uh, uh, psychotherapists in D.C. Sure. So um, <clears throat> I started working in D.C. It was kind of an invitation. It was actually an invitation. I kind of was like, hey, you know, I think you do really well here. And I think people would appreciate your, your skill. And I thought, OK, well, let's give it a shot. Because the other location was New York, and I didn't want to get on the train every day. So, um, and so, even though I do commute in car to DC, <laughs> it's, uh, but it, so I opened up a practice there, and um, you know there are a lot of high net worth, prominent individuals, and um, I think much like we can all appreciate um, a good practitioner, I, I, I feel like my skill and acumen set out and. It was discovered, and um, you know, I began working with these individuals. And there is a bit of a uh, there's some steps that take place in order to get in front of of folks of high caliber net worth, and um, and so when you talk about them being under stress and duress, we are all right, we're all under stress and duress, just like the numbers had demonstrated. Um, you know, anxiety, stress, and worry do not discriminate. Um, you know, we all have some degree of challenge in, in those areas, just as they do, and they are human and they have challenges that maybe are a bit undefined because of our life experiences. We you know we can't say that we all have a CEO experience because we don't, they do. And those that do, they, they have their own set of challenges that are unique to them and those around them. And um, you know, for someone, for me to understand their professional, their lifestyle, um, and their, and whatever issues that are going on in their lives, I think that they find and have found, um, you know, that I'm at a position where I can understand and appreciate and I have experience. Um, and just like any population that we work with, you have to gain experience. And, um, I bring that forward and it's recognized and appreciated and, um, I really love my work in Washington, and I love uh, the population that I work with. And um, you know, it it I, it has afforded me the ability to do like pot time to do podcasts like this and other podcasts of educational value. And um, you know, I, I think the other piece too is that I found myself being an advocate for for individuals of high net worth, like CEOs or C suites or CFOs or politicians, celebrities, prominent club owners, what whichever. Um, because there's a lot of misrepresentation and misunderstanding and misinformation because especially from the media, you know, media is entertainment. And so, um, you know, folks of that, of that population are just like us. They're human. They have challenges. They have feelings and emotions and stressors and they have histories. You know, they were not born CEOs, you know, they weren't a CEO at five, six, seven, or eight. And you know, they have life challenges, too, that that deserve the attention of, of a professional. The other article that I found was one talking about leadership. And this is just a couple months ago. Leadership burnout is on the rise. And it talked about some of these different areas and and why it's on the rise. And, and so I can imagine in your role, your position, there must be some more unique challenges dealing with the C-suite and the higher executives and politicians, especially versus, uh, I don't know, lack of a better term, the, the normal or the average uh, clientele that you usually uh, meet. Can you speak to that a little bit? In other words, what are some of the most challenging aspects of dealing with that type of clientele? Well, one, there's an audience. And I think for anyone, if there's ever an audience, you know, it's performance. And am I doing this right? And, you know, maybe I have to do this right. And, um, 
you know, so and there's a consequence too, not just from the audience perspective, but they're often the audience is the participant of which is it working with them. And so thinking about a CEO or a corporate ownership, it's you have employees. And so there's your audience and uh, the decisions that you make affect other people. And, um, and especially if you're a thought leader, you're the inventor, you're the you know, you're the trustee or the, or the CEO and president or whatever your title is, you're in a leadership role that often doesn't, will not turn off, you know, just because you get home at 5.30 and you, you know, open oh, seven o'clock time to turn on Netflix, as I said before, with someone else, uh, doesn't work that way. And um, there's always a problem. There's always something to be worked through. There's always a strategy. There's always a lingering conversation to be completed. And uh, being able to turn that off can be very difficult for these individuals because one, they are high performers and that talent and skill that they have cuts both ways and that it is what has afforded them success and afforded the opportunity of other people in their lives to have success. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, you know, being able to turn it off so that they can recuperate and regenerate to be that successful person um become shortchanged and and it, it becomes you know they they will shed self-care to perform and to keep up if you will uh, a degree of performance or success or uh expectation or promises and so and that's burnout is is very real in another podcast, I talked about sleep deprivation, you know, and good sleep is usually the first to go and last to come back. You know, if we don't sleep, we get it. We get fatigued. We get tired. We're not sharp. Uh, we begin to take shortcuts on our physical health, which overall impact our mental health. Um, you know, in another podcast, we talked about the effects of aging, you know, talking about presidencies and politicians and how they go in in one term and they come out another term looking very different it's because stress wears on the body, it wears on our mental health. And, um, and so, you know, burnout is a very real thing. Um, and for individuals that we're talking about, it's, it's, uh, it's very prominent in the expectations of their roles that they continue to keep at a caliber that sometimes our brains, our minds and bodies, even though we will, it just cannot. Right. And you're working very well with me. We didn't plan this out ahead, but you, you talked about stress and, and different ways to deal with, uh, burnout as well. Recently, you talked with Inc. And they talked to you and, and you provided uh, a few tips and uh, three simple ways to manage burnout, according to a top psychotherapist. I'll highlight uh, three of them. Drop bad habits, you said, and you gave some good advice on that. Take baby steps moving forward and then have somebody to confide in. And if you don't have that, that outlet, and when I was reading about it, it's really important to reach out to somebody and, and talk through things, whether it's a psychotherapist, psychologist, or anybody else, or just a friend. I think it was very important to uh, uh, point that out to everybody. You mentioned lack of sleep. And I read an article just last <laughs> week saying the same thing, lack of sleep, and then remember to drink plenty of water. Because when you're stressed, you use up more of your liquid and, and uh, many times you get headaches because of lack of water. So I don't know how we're getting off on this tangent, but I'm just, I'm just telling you what I, what I read recently as well. Yeah. So um, if you were in therapy yourself, describe your ideal therapist. So it's interesting you say that. So every therapist, every professional therapist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, social worker, um, behavioral aid, which, whichever mental health position you have, I think it is, it is recommended that you do therapy. Uh, you know, to understand oneself is so important in this field because you bring yourself into the session. And as much as we think we like to compartmentalize and turn ourselves off to be you know, fully present for the other person, we bring memory too. And again, like I said, memories cannot tell time, you know, and that we can be triggered that we need to understand ourselves um, when working with individuals of any population. And so, um, 
the ideal, I guess, therapist. Uh, and so would be someone that is empathetic, that can be understanding. Um, you know, obviously there's a non-judgmental piece there. It's meeting the person where they are in their life and being able to, as they say, put yourself in their shoes or at least trying on their socks uh, because it can be very difficult to do that. Um, people go through life experiences that we cannot fathom. Um, and, you know, what we have in front of us is somebody who needs something from us and, and is helping them to maybe put that into words and helping them to explore what is, what is it that they need because they're often lost and, or maybe they're uncertain and they need encouragement um, and maybe they need clinical intervention. And so um, being, you know, upfront with, with folks is really important to let them know that you're comfortable working with them or not. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think being in the helping field, people can, can fall into the trap of wanting to be the hero and kind of enacting heroic type of efforts for clients that, you know, maybe they don't have a full understanding of what, what's happening in front of them or what's happening in the client's life. So just, just having that comfortability and understanding and then verbalizing that builds that rapport with the client. And that's, that's really important for the longevity of the relationship and the positive influence that a mental health practitioner can have. I would also add that it probably helps them feel more at ease knowing that, hey, my therapist, my psychotherapist, psychologist has gone through therapy himself or herself as well mm -hmm. uh, to deal with it, to, to help them relate and let you know that hey, I've been in your shoes and I can relate with you. Um, what advice do you have to give uh, someone who wants to break into the field of psychology, especially those who want to start their own practice? Before we started recording the podcast, I had mentioned not everybody wants to go the academic route and, and become a professor. A lot of people want to do their own thing and then start their own practice. So what advice would you give somebody, uh, especially if they wanted to start their own practice? So mentor, uh, mentoring and talking to other colleagues is really important. Um, you know, understanding, like doing, like, again, listening to a podcast like this and just talking to other professionals who are in private practice. Um, you know, there's usually an opportunity for practicum and internships. And so um, being able to work in a private practice uh, to try that on for size is important to the experience. Doing your research is important, um, you know, in terms of what type of outpatient uh, private practice groups um, someone may be interested in in their area. Very good advice. Is there anything else that you wish you had known about psychology ahead of time before entering this uh, career path? It's a good question. I haven't given much thought. Um, something that I wish I had known. Um, well, I, I think one thing that I wish I had <laughs> was, I, I guess, more uh, kind of the exposure, the ability to like use like um, uh, media sources and just kind of search sources to be able to like navigate different avenues. And um, even though I, I don't know how much that would have changed, I, I think just more knowledge is always better. <laughs> so um, I yeah, I, I have to think about that and answer that for myself. I, I can't think of anything that comes to mind right now. <laughs> based on your Vita and based on our discussion, one thing that I think um, you might agree with is put yourself out there and ask and, 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 you know, almost you pushed your way in to become that first volunteer, mm -hmm. uh, um, find those internships, find those opportunities. And the worst that could happen is probably no, we can't do that. Well, tell me why, why we can't do that. And, and you seem like that type of, you'd come back and instead of saying, hearing them say, no, we can't do that. Well, why, you know, and, and push back a little bit. Maybe that's a, a nice summary. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a good uh, uh, way of looking at how can we, uh, you know, um, become better and, and improve ourselves and find these opportunities as well in the future? Yeah, I, being persistent um, and ambitious, you know, I've, I've heard those two words before, especially when people have told me no. Mm -hmm. um, it's particularly one of the professors, you know, Dr. Katz, um, uh, who let me into the clinical program. <laughs> and um, the 
uh, professor that did my exit interview had also mentioned that as well. And so, um, you know, there's so many therapists out there and there's so many opportunities. And, you know, I think this, this is a bit of the shadow is that with any profession, there's competition. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to be recognized is, is your responsibility. And so, positioning yourself for those opportunities is, is really about doing your due diligence and your your, your uh, research and um, making sure that it lines up for what your goals are. And if that has to, you have to take a couple of right or left turns, or maybe you have to pause and go back or start over or, uh, do, you know, move a parallel, then, then sometimes you have to do that. But in the end, you, you know, you're reaching your goal where you want to be and and what you want to do. And so you have to, you have to continue because there's a lot of stop signs. There's a lot of no's, there's a lot of lag and that's to be in, in, um, anticipated. Great advice. We usually end the podcast with a few fun questions. And the first one I usually ask my guests is what is your favorite term principle or theory and why? <laughs> term principle or theory. Um, oh my, you really put me on the spot for those, um, kind of elicits more of an emotional, like, <laughs> wow, that's like, that's an exciting question because I know I live by terms and theories and principles in all of the work that I do, the, the self-care that I impose on myself. And I think that, um, is one of them is, and this may, it sounds selfish and it's not meant to be, it's meant to be practical and healthy is putting oneself first. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I tell that to a lot of my, cl my, my clients, you know, you have to put yourself first. And that doesn't mean, you know, in a self-centered way, even though being self-centered can be healthy because we have to be able to say no, right? And um, time doesn't equal availability, right? And so we have to be able to so you take time for ourselves to regenerate, uh, to find our own happiness, to find what makes us tick, to, um, you know, enjoy the facets of life because we can spend 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week in office and working, but that's not living. That's mm -hmm. more existing. And so over time, I become more of the principle of self um, and really doing what I enjoy. And if, if people get upset, you know, I, I, What's the what's that expression? Sorry, not sorry. That right. <laughs> I don't know if it's out of <laughs> out of turn now these days, but um, you know, because burnout's a real thing, stress is a real thing, and we have to take care of ourselves. I like that answer. What is something new that you have learned recently? And a lot of uh, guests think inside their field, it can be anything. Think outside as well. So something new that you have learned recently. Something I've learned recently um, is that one, I really love doing media. I love doing podcasts. I like writing. I like scripting and doing articles. And that's something that's more professional that I was like, oh, I really like this. I like the creativity piece. And, um, you know, continuing to do that, I think, is given a revival to some of the work that I do because it's fun. You know, I don't have to do it. I like to do it. I, it's just another avenue of reaching people. Um, on a personal level, something new or I'd say revived is um, really personal is that I, you know, I picked up skiing again. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of that now that the ski season's over. I have all this new gear that I can't wait to use next year, but I just returned from uh, Quebec and uh, did some skiing in Mount Tremblant, which was just a love, lovely place. And I love nature and just being outdoors and whether it's on a mountain and whatever, wherever it is in nature. And I do have an adventurous side, you know, like white water rafting. I do like level five and um, you know, I love the, the ocean and boating and beach and travel and exploring. So um, that, you know, I've always loved that, but the newness of it is that I'm, I'm, I'm very motivated to continue with those efforts, and especially when it comes to that self-care piece, which is super important for me. 
I'm looking over. I didn't tell you, but I have three screens in front of me. So I'm looking <laughs> I over tell. and I, and I, I uh, uh, pulled up your Facebook and, and you have some good pictures in there showing some of your adventures as well. So I saw that yeah. uh, on your Facebook page. <laughs> if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? To complete one, to complete a project or to go into a trip? I, you know, I, I would love, you can tell that I, I can, I really appreciate my work is that I would love to establish a practice in another country <laughs> just to be able to have, and for selfish, but also helpful reasons is to help other people outside, right? Um, but also to be able to experience a different culture, to be immersed in the culture and immersed in the different perspectives of mental health that maybe that particular culture offers. And so I've always thought about that. Um, and so what in a project, um, people always, it's funny because I always get a lot of slack. So I know a lot of boaters and, uh, sail boaters and I'm like, I want a boat. I want to have a project boat, mate. <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why? <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe because I just like to be frustrated all the time. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> so. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I talked to another guest about having practice uh, overseas or in another country, and we talked about that. And one of the challenges was needing to learn their culture and their cultural norms because the norms in the United States are different from there. So being able to understand the norms and then offer some advice would be challenging as well and something new. So is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up in this podcast? No, I think our conversation was very positively saturated and, and lots of great question and, and dialogue. And I think uh, the information is um, hopefully helpful. And if, if folks have more questions or they want to reach out to me, you know, they can go to my website and email me. It's www.paulsheasleylcpc.com. Uh, there's an email link there. Um, and there's obviously a, a number to, to call as well. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and willingness, and I didn't do this ahead of time, but you'll see on your website, you have multiple licenses. Uh, you're a licensed professional counselor, you're a licensed clinical professional counselor, and then you also mention about drug addiction, and so you are a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor as well. And so uh, I applaud you for uh, seeking out your passion, and, and uh, maybe you'll get that boat one day, who knows, maybe we'll talk <laughs> later and you'll say, Brad, I got my boat, I'm working on it. It's been five years. I've been working on it now, though. But... <laughs> Hasn't sunk yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Paul, thanks again for sharing your story and advice with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.